Hi, this is the Poetry Corner podcast for the St. Constantine School. I'm Dr. Timothy Bartell. Today we're doing part two of what I think will be a three or four part series uh, on this curious fourth century poem by St. Gregory Nazianzus called Aesta Ametra, or On the Metered. It's a poem that is kind of Gregory's meditating on the literary scene of his day, and that leads him to say why he writes poetry. In the last podcast, we read the section where he gives his famous four reasons for writing poetry, and we talked in detail about the first reason. The first reason, if you remember, is what I like to call the ascetic reason for writing poetry, or maybe the ascetic drive in poetry. We want poetry to be a practicing formal constraint that helps us frame our language. In one sense, poetry is essentially challenging if it's formal. And poetry, if we go with Aristotle's definition that it springs from our twin instincts for imitation and harmony and rhythm, we will think that poetry is, in as much as it uses our instinct for harmony and rhythm, which Aristotle says results in meter, we will think that poetry is essentially formal, or at least essentially has a formal aspect. Gregory sees this this writing in form, writing in meter, as a form of self-discipline, even spiritual discipline. He says, with measured labor first I discipline my soul, for writing lines can order my unmetered mind and keep my greedy pen in check. Instead, I spend my sweat on metric form. So we talked about that last time. And I want to reiterate that because I think it's actually one of the most important things that Gregory brings to the study of poetry in the early Christian age. His second reason is actually a little bit more conventional, and I'll read his verses talking about that. He says, second, I write for youths and for whoever takes a deep delight in words. My verses read like sugar with elixir mixed. They can win men to virtue's work and discipline by sweetening with art the bitterness of law. Think how a pulled-back bowstring loves to be let loose. At least my verse can satisfy your preferences for popular and lyric compositions. I have written hymns and plays for those who wish to play, but not be hindered in their quest for beauty. We might call this reason the didactic reason for writing poetry. As far back as Horace in the first century BC, we have classical pagan writers who are saying that poetry isn't just to delight or to entertain, though it certainly does that, but it's also to instruct. Horace has that dual theory. It's to delight and to instruct. That's what poetry is for. Gregory here is picking up on that and giving some new metaphors for it. He says, I write for youths and for whoever takes a deep delight in words. My verses read like sugar with elixir mixed. They can win men to virtue's work and discipline by sweetening with the art the bitterness of law. So twice over, he gives us this kind of culinary image of poetry. Poetry is sugar with elixir mixed or sweetens with art the bitterness of law. Elixir here would mean something like a medicine. And of course, the old 
Mary Poppins adage, a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. Well, it turns out that's actually an early Christian Cappadocian concept, that poetry, song in general, is the thing that makes these hard lessons or these difficult lessons easier to take. He singles out here that he writes for youths. Now, whenever we get into talking about poetry as didacticism, oh, it makes learning fun. All of a sudden, people, I think especially people who try to take poetry and literary art in general very seriously, people start to get uneasy. And I myself get uneasy when I open up a kid's book, say, to read to my children and find that it's been rendered in kind of half-hearted verse. We all have encountered, I think, the jingle, this lesson that we want to teach children or maybe adults, that because we put it in song form or because it rhymes, it's supposed to make us like it more or accept it more. Often we find that, I think, insulting. A spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down, but we kind of know it's medicine and resent the spoonful of sugar. Then again, I think if we look at all great poems, if we think of a poem like King Lear, which we recently talked about in our college program here at St. Constantine, or Paradise Lost, which we're going to talk about soon. These are poems that are seen as masterpieces of their respective genres, tragedy and epic, respectively, and they're full of great beauty, of passages that, even if we, even if maybe they meant something totally different, the sheer sound of their words puts us in awe, either uplifts us or maybe uh, breaks our hearts. Poetry can do that. It can bring that sweetness, both the sad sweetness and the joyful sweetness and everywhere in between. But of course, one of the things we love about King Lear and Paradise Lost is that they also meditate on great truths, often very difficult truths. King Lear takes very seriously the question of how to have a proper relationship with one's parents, or if one is a parent, how to properly love and not take advantage of the love of our children. These are lessons that are difficult. They're hard. They're for adults. Maybe they're even for older adults. Milton, of course, meditates on fundamental questions of what the nature of evil is, what the nature of good is, whether we should sympathize with the fallen angels, uh, what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman. It has God within his triune nature discussing the plan of salvation. It deals with very heavy things. And I think one of the things that might clue us into what lessons Gregory has in mind when he's talking about poetry here, he says, it can win men to virtue's work and discipline. It sweetens with art the bitterness of law. These aren't trite lessons. These aren't look both ways before you cross the street. These aren't even little boys and girls, be nice, not naughty. These are questions of virtue, of discipline, and of law. And if we look at Gregory's other poetry, and Gregory has lots and lots of poetry, much of which actually hasn't been translated, or maybe has only been translated once or twice, Gregory meditates on 
questions of theology. He has uh, a series of poems on the nature of the Trinity in which he expounds his Trinitarian theology, which would be influential, especially on our language, for all subsequent Trinitarian theology from the fourth century to the present. So Gregory, when he says law, when he says virtue, when he says discipline, he's not thinking of trite moralizings. Gregory is thinking of fundamental questions of who man is and who God is. And he's saying that putting these matters into verse are ways to sweeten that sometimes very difficult set of truths, that very difficult line of inquiry. So the didactic then comes after the ascetic. And I think one of the things that we worry about, I think, with any sort of didacticism, even didacticism that we might wholeheartedly agree with, is that when we use art to be didactic, it can kind of feel disingenuous, that art is somehow being co-opted, or art is being used as a concession to the learner. Oh, you're, you're a little slower, you're a little younger, you're a little more naive. I'll condescend to you by saying this in poetic form. I don't think that that's what's going on here, though I think that is a danger of overly focusing on didacticism as the primary and sole motive for poetry in particular and art in general. But one of the things that makes me think that a Gregorian view of poetry avoids that sort of co-opting or condescending to the art of poetry in order to teach is that we've had this ascetic reason talked about in detail, and I think in beautiful detail, just before the didactic function. So he says, first, with measured labor I discipline my soul. Writing lines can order my unmetered mind and keep my greedy pen in check. There's a focus on the discipline of the self through formal work, through taking seriously artistic form as a discipline, as a habit. And I think that once we've done that, once we've truly apprenticed ourselves to an artistic form, I think we're much less willing to use it in a condescending way or to use it flippantly or to use it disingenuously because we know how much effort and how much practice goes into writing metered lines and also how much good can be gained from it. So I think the Gregorian writer, someone who's following what I would call this Gregorian poetics, is someone who would write for youths, who would write about maybe doctrine, maybe write about morality or ethics, but never forget the serious nature, not just of those topics, but of the form in which they're writing them about. We won't get bad, trite poetry from someone who's following these first two reasons in order, because they will have disciplined themselves in the art and apprenticed themselves to the art form before they get to writing for youths. I think we can look at this in lots of poets. T.S. Eliot, who apprenticed himself to poetry, especially very difficult poetry, early in his career, later in his career, writes some poems that were explicitly for church audiences and maybe even young audiences to celebrate very conventional things like Christmas. He has a poem called The Cultivation of Christmas Trees. He has another epiphany poem called The Journey of the Magi. 
these are the type of poems that we might expect by their title to be the sort of bad didactic poetry, the sort of retelling of the journey of the Magi, maybe in lilting tetrameter that in the end sort of makes us feel saccharine sweet and like both the scriptural story and poetry itself has been insulted by our joining the two. But that's not so for Eliot. Eliot has so apprenticed himself to poetry, has so mastered the art of it and taken it seriously that when he turns to more conventional teaching subjects or didactic subjects like the lessons we learn from the Magi, he turns out to draw out, I think, masterful and, in the end, deeply biblical ideas from that story by putting it in verse. In that way, unsurprisingly, I think, Eliot proves to be Gregorian himself in the chronology of how he approaches poetry. I want to talk a little bit about some of the later metaphors that are used for this didactic approach to poetry. Gregory says, think how a pulled back bowstring loves to be let loose. At least my verse can satisfy your preferences for popular and lyric compositions. Think how a pulled back bowstring loves to be let loose. I really love that because it's the kind of thing that I wouldn't expect as a metaphor for sweetening or making more enjoyable a difficult subject. We've had this culinary metaphor and now we turn to an archery metaphor, a metaphor from sport or hunting. And this idea that poetry is like the letting loose of a taut bowstring, I think that's a new image, perhaps even in the history of poetry, that the joy of poetic beauty is the release of a pulled back string. The pulled back string, the tension there, the weight there that is felt by the archer would be, I think, the topic, that bitterness of law that's mentioned in the line before. And when it's let loose, poetry is somehow easing that. I think it's an interesting image. I think more could be said about it. I wonder whether we're also supposed to think about the implications that a pulled back bowstring being let loose is shooting an arrow somewhere. We often speak of the Greek word hamartia or sin as missing the mark, especially in an archery metaphor. I'm wondering if there's some implications that poetry about the most important topics, uh, virtue and law, I wonder if it somehow is helping us hit the mark. I'm reading into that a little bit, I think, but the implications of the bow analogy, I think, need to be thought about more. The sweetening something bitter analogy has been thought about a lot. The bow analogy, not so much. I like that. It's one of the things I love, especially in ancient poets, when they give us an image for maybe a common thing that we haven't seen before. All of a sudden, the ancient poet becomes new to us. It helps us think about our 21st century world our 21st century experience in a new way that seems to us absolutely contemporary, but is in fact ancient. I would say that in one sense, that's why we read old books in the end, because the truths that surprise us, the beauties that entrance us are ancient. Human nature has not changed, though human culture has. And old poetry, the poetry of the saints and martyrs, the poetry uh, of the ancient bards and scholars, it reminds us that humans haven't changed so much and that what shocks us and what entrances us and enthralls us continues to stay the same.
In the next podcast, I want to talk about the third and fourth reason for writing poetry. But I think I'll stop here because after the ascetic and after the didactic, there's a third and a fourth sphere and reason for writing poetry that need to be taken seriously. It's not just that it's for self-discipline. It's not just that poetry is something that we can, once we're self-disciplined and wholly apprenticed in an art, we can use to talk about very important things, the most important things, with others in a way that's winsome and even popular, right? Gregory doesn't shy away from the word popular. He says popular and lyric compositions that nevertheless are about law, are about discipline, are about virtue. There's a third and a fourth sphere, and we'll get to those in the next podcast. Thank you. This has been The Poetry Corner. I'm Dr. Timothy Bartell.